are you? Good, okay. So last week, we had a history lesson, and uh, <clears throat> I had someone come up to me and said, you know, I, enjo- I enjoyed the lesson. I said, well, isn't, isn't history fun? They go, I don't like history. <laughs> so I thought it was really funny, and at the same time, was noble of them. Uh, but the interesting thing about world history that we study, and I'll just recap a little bit, is the history in the Bible does not happen in a vacuum away from world history. Most of the time when we learn world history, it is in a secular environment or a public environment, and they concentrate on those who are not really any, did not have a faith. And even if they did have faith, <clears throat> they certainly don't emphasize that. So for me, it's really fun, it's enjoyable to learn how much God's key people played a role in world history. So last, last week, that was pretty much what it was. We read the parable. We didn't study the parable. So I promise you this week we will study the parable. I can make this promise. We will get at least at, through two verses. I promise that because that's what I prepared. So, um, But this parable is so important. It is a joyous message, and at the same time, it is a devastating message. And so we have to look at that, look at that carefully. Well, last week we learned how Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra, and Caesar Augustus played a role in establishing of the Herod family dynasty. And that included Herod the Great, which was a title he made up for himself, and then his sons, Antipas, Archelaus, who later had a direct impact on the life of Jesus. Antipas was the son who governed during the later adult years of Christ, when he was teaching and preaching throughout Judea. Therefore, we know that Antipas was king when Jesus taught through the use of parables, including this morning's parable of the noble ruler. It's kind of interesting, as you will see. As you may remember, last week, Archelaus took over the throne of Herod the Great, but it was not a good experience for him. He was a very weak leader. due to the hatred the Jews had developed against the Herods, so it would be his father, Herod the Great, his ascendance to the throne, Archelaus' ascendance to the throne was met with great resistance to the point that the Jews sent a delegation to Rome to protest Archelaus assuming the kingship. This is in review. So we know what happened. They were so dissatisfied with Archelaus that they sent a delegation to protest him assuming the kingship. And uh, riots broke out back in Judea. In Judea. So what Archelaus' solution was is he comes back and he slaughters 3,000 Jews during the Passover celebration. Another <clears throat> situation arose later and he had 2,000 Jews crucified. He was not a popular guy. Now, it seems as though Archelaus died in about 18 AD, and then Antipas took over the kingdom. So if you're Antipas, and you have seen your father, Herod the Great, lose his mind for probably the last two years of his rule, to the point that he tried to commit suicide, and to the point that he ordered the killing of every 
uh, Jewish boy in Bethlehem two years and younger so he could hopefully kill this new Jewish king that was going to be born. If you've seen that and if you've seen the hatred from the Jewish people toward the Herods, and Archelaus comes in and he is a horrible leader and he dies at an early age, you would think that Antipas might be a little nervous about leadership. It was a volatile time. And you would think that he might rule with an iron hand. But Antipas, otherwise known as Herod II, was kind of passive. It doesn't mean he was any less, that he was any more moral or honorable or any less cruel. He is the Herod for whom Salome danced and then demanded the head of John the Baptist. Herod, being consumed with lust at the time, and this was his niece, dancing before him, he said, whatever you want, I will give it to you. And Salome, receiving instruction from her mother, said, demand the head of John the Baptist. So Herod, not wanting to break his word, killed an innocent man. And it's kind of funny, isn't it? With evil rulers, they will guard their honor, even if it means committing a heinous crime. And that all comes down to one thing, pride. It's all pride. And we know that the Herods were very prideful. They'd had a dynasty that had lasted for a number of years. So here's a brief lesson for us. Evil people have a twisted view of honor. They may be strong in their beliefs, and some may even honor them for their beliefs because they keep their word. But in the end, it's not honor at all. It's cowardice. We read in Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees conspired with the Herods to kill Jesus. It says this, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the, uh, with the Herodians against him as to how to destroy him. So we see Jesus is teaching. He's gathering a following. He's becoming somewhat of a threat. So now there's a conspiracy. So in the 19th chapter of Luke, Jesus is teaching a parable based upon the treachery, abuse, and brutality of the Herod dynasty. And he was doing this while some of the brothers and sons were still in power. It's safe to say that most of them, actually all of them were clueless with the meaning of the parable. But they were not clueless concerning the size and enthusiasm of Christ's following. None of them were clueless concerning this. If you want to get a government's attention, get a whole lot of people carrying signs that say the same thing and go marching in their district. That gets their attention. Today, that gets their attention. Back then, it got their attention. They didn't fear Jesus at all. They feared the power he was developing through the number of people that were following him. So all of this plays a role in the view that the people have of Jesus on two different levels. Number one, it galvanized their belief 
that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish king, born from noble blood, who was to come and conquer the oppressive Roman Empire. So for the Jewish people, everything that was taking place and this following that Jesus was building just began to galvanize their belief, which was really nothing more than a hope, that Jesus was the long-awaited king that was born from noble blood. There was an amazing momentum that surrounded Jesus and his followers that had been building during the three years of his ministry. Momentum is a very powerful thing. Positive momentum is almost impossible to stop. Once it begins to roll, it sweeps everything along with it. It has been said that when there is positive momentum, you can't do anything wrong. People just overlook it. If there's a negative momentum, you can't do anything right. And we've seen that, right? And in churches. By the way, thank you for positive momentum. The crowds believed that all of this momentum and excitement would come to a climax during the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. They believed that while there, perhaps Jesus might even be coronated as the new king of Israel. It all made sense. They're marching from the north around Samaria. They go back over. They, they cross the Jordan to the west. And, they, and they, they go through Jericho. We know what happened in Jericho. Some miracles happened in Jericho. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, which isn't very far away. And it's Passover. There's this momentum. All of these people from the north that have seen miracle after miracle after miracle, they've begun to follow him wherever he goes. And the crowd is going larger. They get into Jericho. Two things happen there, probably many more, that really uh, galvanize them. And now they're on their way to the Passover celebration. My question is, how heady would it be to have thousands of people hanging upon your every word? This is just a side note. Jesus was 100% God. He's 100% human, 100% man. There's no mixture. We can't understand that, but that's what the Bible says. And the reason it says that is to help us understand that Jesus was not beyond temptation, any temptation that we experience. He experienced every temptation known to man. He has a thousand people following him, hundreds, maybe several thousand people following him, and they're hanging upon his every word. Do you think Satan worked in that at all? It would have been heady to have thousands of people hanging on your word. How difficult might it be not to surrender to the adulation of those who were caught up in the fame and the power of the moment? Would it have not also been difficult not to come to the rescue of everyone who is in need? You know, leaders have their favorites. Everybody has their favorites. And think of all the opportunity Jesus had to solve everyone's problem on this final trip, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And I think even on even in the good that we have within us, we want to help people. How many times have you heard, if I were ever win the lottery, I think I would give it all away. You know, that's never been done. That we know of. You wouldn't. I just, I just want to help people. That's good. 
but the flesh is still very much alive. And Jesus resisted those things. How many more followers could he have had had he just stopped and waved a magic hand, which is not how he did it, by the way, waved a magic hand and began to continue to build that group of people? So we know how God's people felt about Jesus. They were hoping beyond hope that he was finally the person that was going to release them from bondage. Next question is, how did Rome feel about this Messiah of the Jews? Well, if you're in leadership in Rome at this time, your main concern is that nobody creates a bad situation. They were neither impressed or unimpressed with Jesus, as long as he or anyone else knew their place and created no problems. They couldn't have cared less about Jesus. They didn't get it. They didn't have to get it. They did later, but they didn't have to get it. This is what they thought. Who is this carpenter turned evangelist that's out roaming the countryside and he stays with tax collectors, he stays, uh, he stays with harlots, he ministers, and you should see his followers. Larry Norman coined a phrase in one of his songs that said he's a, he had a band of unschooled ruffians. And that's exactly what they were. God had a plan for them. But if you're in leadership in Rome, why bother with this fellow? But Rome was always concerned during the Passover celebration because a million people who were under their rule made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under their rule. Once every year, a million that's the estimate, made a pilgrimage, which is more than a vacation. Pilgrimage has some spiritual significance to it. They made a pilgrimage to this town, the city of Jerusalem. The main priority for Rome was to maintain order while this celebration was taking place. That's really all they cared about. Keep a low profile. Keep your head low. We'll leave you alone. On the other hand, the Jews, in their view, not only needed rescued from Rome, they needed rescued from the Jewish leadership. In reality, Jesus was not disagreeing with the with the um, was not disagreeing with or acting against Rome. He was disagreeing and in opposition to the Pharisees and all of the others who were utter hypocrites and oppressing the common working class Jewish population through the twisting of the law. So on one level, the Jews, other than the leadership, see him as the promised deliverer from their captivity from Rome. But it was bigger than that. Their expectation was that if Jesus were appointed king, they would never be in captivity again. Their days of slavery would be over once and for all. So if you're getting, if you're kind of getting the understanding of all that's happening, kind of in the atmosphere that surrounds Christ, coming from the north, down south, over the Jordan, many, many people. And this is what the, the people that are following him, this is what they're hoping for. We want to be delivered from Rome, and we want to be delivered from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the chief priests. Because they're brutal. So the first thing that happened with this positive momentum is it galvanized the Jews' belief that Jesus was a long-awaited Jewish king. The second thing that happened 
is it galvanized the Jewish leadership's belief that Jesus was a problem who needed to be dealt with. So we see the political thing happening here. People are on Twitter all the time here. Right? They're tweeting back and forth in this era, in their own way. There's this thing that's underneath, and it's beginning to broil. Now, ironically, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes and chief priests had the same problem as Rome. That's why they were together. But Israel was a kingdom under the Roman Empire. They wanted the Passover celebration to proceed without any issues. One of their fears was that Rome would have to intervene to keep order, which would make them appear weak. You have a kingdom under a kingdom. Rome says this to the Herods, the Herodians, or whoever else may be in power. He says this, look, don't, break the, don't let them break the Roman law. That's all, that's all we care about. Don't let them break the Roman law. And by the way, keep things under control. Because if you don't, we will intercede. You understand that, mini-king? You understand that, Mr. Mini-king? You're the mini-king. We're the big king. You're the mini-king. This is your responsibility. Keep them from breaking Roman law, because we don't want an uprising, and keep them from creating an issue. That was what they were concerned about. The last thing they wanted to happen was about to happen. We might use the phrase, the perfect storm to describe that which God was orchestrating behind the scenes, under the surface. God is orchestrating. And by the way, when this type of thing had happened in the past, the retaliation from the Herods was always brutal against God's people. Jesus knew all this. He knew he was marching to the cross, not to a coronation. And he chose this moment in God's plan to give them this parable. And it was truly a devastating parable. You have the scripture on the front of your scripture sheet. We won't be reading much, but let's read at least a little bit. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There's two things we learn from this first sentence. Number one, He was near to Jerusalem, which means the cross was looming over him. And there was still confusion concerning the kingdom of God. He knew these things. He knew that this time with them was at... He knew that his time with them was at an end. He was placing into the hands of 12 ordinary but divinely chosen men the gospel of salvation. The apostles... Now, Judas is in this mix. God had already allotted for that. Jesus has with him the gospel of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation. And it was imperative that they fully understood his mission. And it was apparent to Jesus that his apostles had still not comprehended what the kingdom of God meant. They were still attached to the idea that Jesus was going to go in and rule an earthly kingdom and was going to deliver them from Rome and the Herods. This fact was proven in the book of Acts. After his resurrection, he appeared to the apostles. Acts 1, 
beginning with verse 6, says this, So when they had come together, they asked him. They were together, and Jesus showed up in their midst. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It didn't happen in Jerusalem a few days ago. It's a mess, God. It's a mess. We're hiding. We don't know what to do. We don't know who to follow. So now you're here. Okay, now, is it it now that you're going to restore? Listen to Christ's response. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That was Jesus' good news to them. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There's no record that this happened, but if it would have happened, it probably would have been Peter. He would have said, can't he ever just talk straight to us? Are you here now for the kingdom? He says, it's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know that. But I will tell you this. Some amazing things are going to happen. And then he lifts off. I kind of see the humor in this. Their big response might have been, huh? I think they had that response a lot to Christ's teachings. Luke 19.12 says this, He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. That was his next sentence that he gave him the parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, the nobleman of this parable is obviously Christ. The word nobleman can mean the son of a king. But in this case, it just means a man born from a noble family. And this just and noble man, Jesus, went on a long trip to another country. So the question is, where did he go? Okay, the simple answer is, he went back to heaven. He's talking about his return to heaven. That's coming up. Another interesting question is, why did he have to go there? What was the purpose? Well, obviously it was his home. And this portion of his ministry had concluded. And it was successful. And so he left his home to save us. So above and beyond the obvious, there were at least two very distinct reasons he returned to heaven. One is this. He was to receive his due glory in heaven. Some might say that he was glorified upon his resurrection. Matter of fact, there are some commentaries that say that. And yet we read this in John twenty seventeen. He's talking to Mary. He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Part of Christ receiving his due glory would be his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
In Mark, we read about an amazing event that took place after Jesus had walked with the disciples following his resurrection. That was in Acts. Mark 16, 19 has a little more information. It says, After that he went up into the clouds. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into the clouds and sat down at the right hand of God. Traditionally and culturally, the king would allow only men or women of great honor to sit on his right. So now we have what we call the ancient one in another scripture. And his son comes forward after completing his ministry. And he says, have a seat. Sit beside me on my right hand. So Christ left the apostles and ascended into heaven. Now, after this ministry and the suffering on the cross and the many things that Jesus accomplished, that great peril and suffering and pain, what kind of a reception do you think Jesus would receive in heaven? It would be marvelous, wouldn't it? kind of wonder what it looked like. But really, we don't have to. Because Daniel had a vision in chapter 7. And this is what he says. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Isn't this amazing? Mark tells us what the apostles saw at ground level. And Daniel switches scenes and tells us what he saw as Jesus was entering heaven. Isn't that amazing? I want to read it to you again. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. King of kings. Lord of Lords, following his ministry and his sacrifice, he was coronated in heaven, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was led into the presence of the Ancient One. Christ's office is intercessor. Who leads us into the presence of the Ancient One now? Jesus, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. The Apostle Paul says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. In the place of a king who indeed is interceding for us. Ephesians 1.20, that he, meaning God the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
We also have a testimony of an eyewitness of Christ at the right hand of God in Acts 7.55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why would Jesus be standing when Stephen saw him? He honors martyrs. Can you imagine entering into heaven and God and Jesus Christ is standing in your honor? It's hard to fathom, is it? I mean, it's hard to fathom. So for what kingdom was he coronated? Kings are coronated for, for a, a kingdom. Just a little bit of a side note. We're going to talk about Jesus being coronated to have authority over the earth and everything that right now the enemy and the non-believers have some authority or at least some leeway. It's not true. Jesus has always had control of all things. Jesus has always been the only one who owned everything. The official coronation that took place according to God's plan will make known to all humanity that which has always been known to God and believers. So Jesus has always been the king of things. He has always ruled all things. He owns all things. All things will submit to Jesus at the divinely appointed time. So what difference does this make on a practical level? Well, throughout history, and you'll, you'll get this, throughout history... We have only known Jesus as the king of peace and humility. Zechariah says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. We won't go into that. And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth during those years if a king one who had been coronated rode into your city on a steed or a horse of war he was entering as a conqueror if a king rode into a city on a donkey, he was riding in as a king of humility and peace. Jesus is about to instruct his apostles to secure a colt from a donkey upon which he will ride into Jerusalem. He is proclaiming, I am the king that enters in peace and humility. What was Christ's mission? while he lived on this earth, and even while we are waiting for his return, grace, mercy, love, peace. His second, company, his second coming will be quite different. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the, fur, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And his robe, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Christ returns, it will not be a king of humility and peace. He will return as the conqueror. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as a submissive king of humility and peace to fulfill his mission as a sacrifice upon the cross. He did this for those who had and would receive him. He will return on a white horse as the conquering king, as a warrior and an executor. He will execute. The second reason he returned to heaven was so the Holy Spirit could be sent to the apostles and other believers. First reason was so he could be coronated as king. Second reason was so that the Holy Spirit would be made available. How do we know this? John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. God has a reason for all things. So we see here in the first two verses of this parable that Jesus was setting the stage for a devastating prophecy that comes next week as we study the rest of this parable. He pulls no punches concerning the fate of those who reject him. Next week, we will look at the only options that were available to those who were listening at, on his, at his teaching and still the only options we have in this day. They haven't changed. So the king is on his way. We do not know the day, the hour, or the moment he will arrive, but the Bible guarantees us that no one will miss it. Even if you don't have cable, no one will miss his return, and all will know him when they see him. And at that time, the time for decision is passed. So my question for you this morning is, where are you looking for your peace? Are you excited about the Lord's return? Or are you fearing the Lord's return? If you're excited about the Lord's return, I think that says that you know Jesus. If you're not excited, it may mean that you just don't know enough about Jesus. But by and large, it means that you're not saved doesn't mean we don't have fear about the unknown. That's not what I'm saying. But no one can look forward to the end times as horrible as they're going to be and be excited about them unless you know that we're not here. 
So this Jesus that we read about, as if he is a character in a play, or perhaps he's one-dimensional, and it's only significant for those who know him, that's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. The Jesus of the Scriptures transcends history. And what heaven and Jesus and believers know today is that he owns and governs all things. Everyone else will know at some point in time when he returns. So our hope is that you know him. So to receive him, It's pretty simple, but you have to understand a few things. The Bible demands that before you can receive Jesus Christ, you come to a point in your life when with the best of your understanding and knowledge, you can say the following to him, Lord, I am not worthy of everything I've read about you. I don't measure up to you. And I believe that you are the son of God. I believe the Bible's true. And I believe it's true for me. And I believe it's true for me right now. At which point you can, you have the opportunity to say, I don't understand at all, but what I understand is this. I do not measure up. And the only way I can measure up is for you to measure up for me. So I lay down everything I have, Lord. I acknowledge you as the Son of God, the one and only Savior, and I bow down and I receive you. And that is salvation.